welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Hi, everyone. We are back. It is 2023. Alex Sarlin, Ben Cornell, EdTech Insiders, welcome back to your home with your kindling fire over here. Maybe you have a bomb cyclone going on outside or beautiful snow. Maybe you're in Miami and you're already down at the beach. We're so glad to have you with us for 2023. We can EdTech kickoff. Please make sure that you take a chance to listen to our predictions episodes. Part one is Alex and Ben, so you know what to bet against because whatever we predict, we're usually wrong. And part two, where we actually talk to the people who know what's going on, our experts. We had six guests. It was incredible. Also, a number of interviews coming out. What's going on with the pod this week, Alex? Yeah, so we have some terrific upcoming episodes. We talked right over the holiday season with Steve Grubbs of Victory XR. They are the company building metaversities with all these different colleges, including historically black colleges and universities, trying to make it easier for universities to just try out and access the metaverse. And this week, we're talking to Deepak Sekar from Professor Jim, which is a company that literally can take curriculum and use AI to make automated instructional videos from text with fake hosts and avatars and slides that are automatically generated. It's a really interesting product. So I definitely recommend checking that one out. But Ben, what's going on in the world this week? Well, we are going to spare you the should ChatGPT be in schools because we all know the answer is ChatGPT and AI is coming. We wanted to kind of get really deep in the EdTech universe. So first headline is companies becoming platforms. Alex, tell us more. Yeah. So a number of pretty wow-ish headlines over the last, you know, few weeks that all sort of, in our mind, lend aim towards the same trend. So first off, we saw Houghton Mifflin buy NWEA, which is a test service that famously creates the MAP exam in schools, which is often considered sort of the common benchmark for progress for a number of different grades. So you're seeing one of the traditional publishers actually purchase one of the core assessment benchmarks. That's a really interesting move. And it obviously portends their attempt to sort of be in continued competition with Pearson and to really expand what it means to be an educational publisher, because the NWA is really kind of has become one of the go-to benchmarks for learning efficacy. That is a big headline. We also saw Zoom start to take a set of essential apps is what they call them. So there is a Zoom app store with many different apps, but they're hard to find. Zoom took a number of, quote, essential apps and really baked them directly into the platform, making them very easy for users to access, two of which are EdTech products, including our old friend Kahoot, the quizzing platform, and Prezi, which is a sort of dynamic presentation platform that's used by many, many teachers and educators around the world. So Zoom is saying, hey, we know so many different things are happening on our platform. Some of these things are education. Let's make it as easy as possible for people to engage in educational experiences on Zoom, make these apps really visible. That's a big deal. 
And then we talked to Carl Rectanis right before the break. Canvas in structure bought Learn Platform, which is an evidence service, an ed tech evidence platform. So you're seeing Instructure and LMS start to move into the evidence space and say, we could actually play a major role in helping educators and school districts and universities decide which tools and maybe even which techniques actually are efficacious within the platform. So these are all big extensions of what these companies do traditionally. And I think it's really interesting to see them expand and consolidate. What do you make of all this, Ben? You know, the predictions when we entered a little bit of our EdTech winter is that consolidation was going to happen. And there's kind of the financial engineering of, you know, combining companies allows you to decrease your customer acquisition costs because you're sharing channel. It can also improve your product competitiveness by aligning with others. What I don't think we emphasize enough is that this could also be the moment where companies reimagine themselves from product to platform. And the idea that we are seeing this evolution between you have this problem and this product fixes it to you're going to get everything you need from our ecosystem, our full suite of integrated products on top of our platform. This has the potential to catalyze that. And it's certainly not a new concept. I think the some of the private equity-backed companies have been thinking about that for a while and have been rolling up companies with this idea of being a unifying platform. But, you know, and Jack McDermott's article is really great for identifying that. But they're also rethinking how the software works and moving from salespeople holding kind of in their bag five to 10 different products but actually to thinking about all of these things interoperating. And the NWEA one in particular is interesting. One, because it's a nonprofit. We saw edX sell to to you. That felt like an upside move. Like we're going to go reach more people. The question with the NWA one, was it an upside move where HMH is like, we're moving into, you know, competency-based assessment. Let's go do this. Or was it NWEA saying, we're running out of revenue. We're running out of funding. Schools are really hard to penetrate. We just need to get out of this game. And it could be both. But I think that we're going to see the strategies go from a slide deck to reality much more in this environment where there are clearer buyers and clearer sellers. And this NWA move, I would never have expected them to be a clear seller it's a signal that there might be more sellers out there than we thought. One thing that this does connect to is a broader EdTech winner. And when you're seeing people consolidating, you're also looking at layoffs and you're looking at CEO turnover. This is our second headline. They kind of go together. Udemy, the CEO retiring, Upgrad, CEO stepping down, Musella with Matt Gross, stepping down or, I don't know, passing the baton to Pep Carrera ostensibly to sell Newzella. Quizlet, their CEO, Matt Glotzbach, stepping down. Inspera, a digital assessment platform, they had their CEO turnover. So, you know, as much as you're seeing like some layoffs and some tightening for the EdTech winner, you're also seeing CEOs either 
you know, individually making the call like, hey, I've had a great run. I'm ready to hand the baton to somebody else and or board saying we need some new CEO energy here. And what that often means, it's not universally the case, but often means you're going from a vision led company where that CEO was kind of the creative force to like get the company off the ground and move things forward to a more market led or like business outcome focus where, okay, now we're bringing in somebody who's going to see the business to its logical conclusion, IPO, sale, sustainability, whatever it may be. So it just means that we're amplifying change. So I don't know, as you think about the platforms, Alex, as you see CEOs kind of in Moss in January, making the, you know, handing the baton off, how are you making sense of it? Yeah, I think with each of these CEO changes, I think that they don't all, I think, portend exactly the same thing. So, you know, Udemy is a already a public company. They, Greg Kachari, who's the one who's retiring and stepping down, was already, I think, the second generation of sort of new CEO adult in the room. The founders have walked away from Udemy a long time ago. So I think this is really a very sort of natural change. It's a retiring and he's being succeeded, I believe, by the head of Udemy business, which makes total sense, which is the fastest growing business line. For some of the other ones, it feels trickier. And I think it's closer to the narrative you're saying here. So the Upgrad CEO stepping down, Upgrad is one of the big Indian unicorns in ed tech. And as far as I've seen so far, there's not even any reason for, I mean, there's been no stated reason why he's leaving. So that makes me wonder if it is, you know, board led, or if it's something, I have no idea what it is. But most of the articles about it cite exactly what you just said, Ben, the ed tech winter. It's like, the landscape has shifted pretty quickly. And I think it's a moment where everybody in EdTech is deciding what to do next. Some of the big companies that have lots of money in their coffers are scooping up uh, smaller companies. You know, Jack McDermott's article, like you mentioned, basically talks about how power school and renaissance learning over the years scooped up 42 different individual EdTech products. Between the two of them, they got 42 different products into their product line. And I think, you know, we're starting to see a new wave of acquisitions, but we're also starting to see some of the sort of mid-sized companies like a Nuzella or a Quizlet. Quizlet was started by a college student. It was bootstrap funded for many years, didn't take any funding, and was still one of the top 50 sites in the world, just because it was so incredibly valuable for students. It was just a terrific flashcard site, basically, that everybody knew about. And now they're starting to think of themselves as a business or the board is starting to think of them as a business and they're starting to bring in new blood. And I think some of the founder CEOs are also probably saying, wow, we've been through it over the last few years. We've seen the pandemic yeah. and this explosion of, of new users and now the dip and maybe it's time to take a break and then and, and, and just step back and think for a little while. Ben, you specifically found the Mad Gross Pep Carrera one really Interesting. I'd love to hear you expound on that. Yeah. Well, before I dive into that one, I also just think there is this revaluation of the industry that's happening formally or informally. And many of these companies, I think just the list of companies, I don't see based on what I know and what I've been hearing, I don't see any of them at some sort of existential risk where there's a new CEO coming in to save the day. It actually seems much more, and this is pretty common with like January, New Year announcements. It's, these are all folks 
and organizations that have been pretty well run and have really been thinking about leader succession. And so the announcements that we're hearing now really portend to a transition of focus for the organizations. When you are valued at a billion or unicorn plus, and then the reality of your business is in a different spot, it can also be a time where the CEO who's kind of pitched everybody on the billion valuation, you know, hands the baton to somebody who's really, you know, kind of helping the investor groups, both current and future, understand the new actual valuation and the path forward. The Newzell one is interesting because it's, I think, first, I have a ton of respect for Newzella and how they've built their company. And Matt Gross is like one of those hardcore education people who has always been about the classroom, about the learner, about the learning paradigm. And the belief has been, if we do right by educators, we do right by kids, the business will work its way out. And it has. You know, he comes from like common core days where when it was launched, there were these new standards around informational text that weren't supported anywhere. So I think that that era at Newzella where we saw the rise of supplemental education companies, they are the poster child for that. And it really begs the question of, are the core providers going to start looping in the supplementals? And when you see Pep coming in, who joined Nearpod and helped them successfully exit and become part of a larger package, it's pretty clear that they're moving to a spot where they will be likely joining up with someone else to provide like a full suite of products. So it also just, it's like, you know, there's people in our industry like Pep who understand how to take a business that is kind of serving a particular niche and then articulate that value proposition as connected. And I would say early days of Nearpod, it was a freemium product where they hadn't really figured out the meum side of it. And as they transitioned from like founding team and into the pep era, they really built a big and successful business. And so I'm both like surprised to see macro step down, but I'm also excited to see what pep is going to do with it. And, you know, I think this kind of a story is something everyone's trying to figure out for each of the companies that we mentioned. hundred percent. You know, a side issue for this, and I don't know if this is a beginning of a trend or just a one-off, what we'll have to see, but is a Chinese ed tech company, which we haven't talked about Chinese ed tech very much in a while for obvious reasons, just basically is starting to do a US-based IPO. It's a company called QuantaSing, and it looks like another possible next move for at least some of these Chinese ed techs is an adult learning company is to do IPOs in the States. And so that used to be pretty common, but it hasn't been in a while. And there's a article sort of in Bloomberg basically saying, hey, this might be the first in a series of Chinese ed tech companies who are going to start looking to do IPOs in the US, which I found this like a little bit of a curveball story and an interesting one. But I think it's another side, you know, you see 
all these things happening in India. You see some of the U.S. companies figuring out their next steps. And it seems like with Chinese ed tech, it's been completely decimated by regulation. There's maybe a path forward for some of them. So we'll have to keep our eye on on the Chinese ed tech cycle over the next few months. Then one of the headlines that caught my eye this last couple of weeks that I just thought was so interesting was that the Seattle Public Schools last week decided to file a lawsuit against basically all of the social media companies. That It's TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and YouTube, basically saying that these companies have created a mental health crisis in schools, that they've created a situation where students are, quote, so sad or hopeless almost every day for two weeks or more in a row that they're stopping doing usual activities. That number of students increased by 30% in the smartphone era and that they can't find enough counselors. And they're basically saying, hey, tech companies, hey, social media tech companies and, and YouTube, you're not doing right by our students. That blew my mind a little bit. I mean, we've heard that backlash sort of coming, but to do an actual lawsuit and put this into the courts because of what, you know, tech is doing to students' brains, the addictive properties of social media, they call it. It's pretty amazing. What what do you make of it? What does that say about the world right now? Well, I have kind of three hot takes on this one. Like one is just the overall zeitgeist right now is is shifting to anti-big tech. And some of that comes out of them being monopolistic or, you know, having tons of power. But I also think some of this has to do with the coming out of COVID, just like a reaction to online and tech kind of overtaking our lives. Second is like for ed tech players, we're already getting that backlash from COVID, this kind of shift. There is like an anti-ed tech vibe because people want back in person and people are overwhelmed with the number of tools. But I think the this bigger big tech narrative kind of inflames those things. And the third thing that I would say is it is amazing to me that Microsoft and Amazon are kind of coming out of all of this stuff looking really good. And I think ironically it's Seattle, right? So of course they're not going to go after Amazon or Microsoft. But number two (laughs) is, you know, the kind of social media players have really, really taken it on the chin. Whereas Microsoft right now is riding high with ChatGPT integration of their cloud, you know, computing with ChatGPT, but also across their suite of products, this I, the vision for AI integration across their suite, you have to basically consider them a huge potential player over the next 10 years in an ascendant way. Two or three years ago, I would have said, you know, Microsoft's a little on the descent. And I think the second is that, and and on Amazon side, I think that they had been under fire last year because of labor practices and so on, but they are starting to figure out their like public policy moves. And I do wonder you know, my gut is that Amazon is going to steer away from EdTech even more. You know, they kind of shuttered 10 marks. I think that the education space is something that's probably too politically tricky. So where do where does that leave us? It's the big dog, Google. What are they going to do? YouTube is competing against TikTok. Kids are a huge user. 
Google is the largest ed tech company in the world with nine of the top 10, according to Learn Platform, apps used in schools, Google properties. How are they going to navigate all of this when, you know, clearly the bullseye is on TikTok because they're Chinese controlled and held? It's really easy to see Google in the crosshairs, both domestically and internationally, and how will that affect their play in education space? Meanwhile, just this week, they're rolling out their Google for Education player, which they had announced not long ago. So, you know, for those of you who are kind of like, what's the ed tech playing in this? The theme of 2021, 2022 was generalist investment funds and big tech really getting into, you know, education space. A lot of workforce, some higher ed and some K-12. Will this be, you know, 2023 be a retraction year for big tech? Or will a couple of the big tech players double down on learning as one of their avenues? And the big one to watch, I think, is Google and the kind of sneaky or ascendant one. I don't mean sneaky in a bad way, but the underdog here, ironically, funnily, is Microsoft. And if you're thinking about, I want to exit successfully or I want to integrate successfully, you're going to have to think about Google Suite and about you know Microsoft's tools coming in the space. Yeah, that's a terrific set of takes on this. I think, you know, my last thought on it is just what surprised me about this story is that it wasn't about a single big tech company. It wasn't, you know, anti-meta. We've seen lots of schools have backlashes against meta. It wasn't anti-TikTok because it's Chinese specifically. It was really saying... It's social media. I mean, they they have they have a quote from the superintendent of Seattle Public Schools. This is what it says: Our students and young people everywhere face unprecedented learning and life struggles that are amplified by the negative impacts of increased screen time, unfiltered content, and the potentially addictive properties of social media. So this is really about the entire concept of social media. They're basically saying social media. It hurts people. It hurts students. It hurts young people. Get it out of here. I don't think I've seen something that kind of broadside in a while. And and it does. I mean, you, then you look at, you know, meta trying to do the educational metaverse and trying to come back around and convince universities and schools that a different that maybe social media isn't good for kids. But what about the metaverse? It's going to make that argument a little harder to make. And then you look at, like you said, Ben, Google. Yeah, already so embedded in schools and starting to lean in a little more and saying, hey, well, you can use YouTube in a really educational way. I think it's a real interesting sign of the zeitgeist for educators to sort of be this blunt about basically saying you're driving our kids crazy. <laughs> so that's how you can yeah. read this. I think that the mental health theme here too, that's a great take, Alex. And it just does go to show that mental health is becoming one of the kind of core issues for municipalities, school districts, everyone. And it's kind of climbing the ladder versus like academic results and outcomes. Mental health is kind of, you know, taking top billing. And then of course, schools continue to be hyper-politicized. You know, we saw uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida this week start to take new college in Florida, which is a hyper-progressive college. They say it has a 10, 10% transgender student ratio. 10% of their students are transgender and basically stack it with super conservative sort of anti 
woke, you know, players as the board of the college trying to set up an incredible, you know, political war there to raise his own, his own political, uh, you know, flags. But you've been following the school board stuff for a while. Well, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing in Seattle is just part of this broader national fight between conservatives and liberals around the role of schools and education and technology in in the education arena, DeSantis basically is using budget provisions to force higher ed institutions across Florida to report on any expenses related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and then putting pressure on cuts. And I think it's University of Florida refused to submit their kind of anti-woke financial statement. So it is, you know, really coming to a political head there. And as you can see, it's DeSantis' calculation is that this is politically advantageous. Axios, meanwhile, just this week came out with a report that 1,500 K-12 school board elections included debates about race, CRT, you know, also some of them included specifically gender, but these their report specifically looks at race and CRT. And, you know, I was looking at their data set and it's through Ballotopedia. If you go there, they have a spreadsheet of literally every school board race, the candidates and what their statements were about race. And, you know, I click on the first one and you get some really insane perspectives. Let's see. There's a candidate from Alaska who says, here's my platform to reopen all schools immediately. This is 2021 to give the children their desk back to have children have their recess time. I will eliminate the Planned Parenthood slaughter clinics from our district and stop the propagandizing of our children against the will of the parents. I will also balance the budget as is necessary according to the statute. I mean, I read that (laughs) and I'm like, well, at least he's balancing the budget. (laughs) You know, I, I think for our listeners, is there a crisis in school boards? 23% of the kind of Make America Great Again coalition won school board elections. Is that enough to turn the majority on every school board? Probably not. But I will just say from a practical standpoint, if you have one bomb-throwing school board member mucking up the, the board meetings and, you know, kind of creating a toxic culture in the school board, it really has a decimating effect. And I my bigger takeaway on all of this nationally is If you want to prove that government is bad, you get elected to run it and then you run it poorly. That's kind of like the conservative or, you know, like I wouldn't even say conservative, like far radical right way of doing things now is to get elected and then dysfunctionalize the systems to prove your point. I think we're, you know, in a moment from, you know, national elections in the U.S., And, you know, if you look at Brazil and Bolsonaro, like internationally, we're seeing these like conflicts play out, but also at a hyper local level, we're seeing that education, schools and learning are really activating both sides. So transitioning from that, there's also, you know, we talked a little bit about the pullback from education due to EdTech winter and so on. The last story we wanted to share with you is just a shocker, Frank which is a college financial aid and financial analysis, financial planning software, had a mega deal bought by Chase and Jamie Dimon 
for $175 million. Their founder was a Charlie Javis. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Javis Javis was a 30 under 30 award winner and basically had created this incredible platform that helped, you know, high school and college students plan their finances for successful navigation of college. Purchased for $175 million. Turns out, allegedly, that 4.25 million users were totally pure fiction. And it's kind of like FTX comes to EdTech. You know, JP Morgan spent $2 billion alone in 2022 working across acquisitions, data, cloud, infrastructure, etc. But this is one of the, the startup really only had 300,000 customers, according to Chase. And they had paid 10 million personally to Charlie Javis with another 20 million guaranteed. So they, not only was it 175 million, but this was a big personal windfall. And I think it just goes to show that we in education are not immune to potential fraud. And that this is the kind of story that just scares away generalists acquirers or investors from our space. I don't know. You pay a lot of attention to the higher ed space. Like, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, this story totally bewildered me. It's obviously just sad for, I think, everybody involved. I guess my only insight potentially is that, you know, we, we talked with Sabrina Manville of Edmit a while back on the platform, and she, she wrote a great editorial for the newsletter. And her take was that it's really, really hard to create ed tech products that can actually make a meaningful difference in the sort of student debt world that can help students navigate it. They can help them repay it well. They can help them, you know, just sort of make sense of it or find the best options or find scholarships. And, and her take was the reason it, for that is it's just hard to know who the real buyer is. There's a lot of weird mixed incentives when it comes to sort of a platform that does that. And Frank was actually a little bit of an exception to that role. It was doing ostensibly at the time, really, really well, had lots of users and was trying to, you know, enter exactly that space to help students find their funding. So I totally agree with your last point, which is that if Frank becomes sort of the de facto poster child for this pretty niche part of ed tech, that's not a good thing at all for the field. We're speaking in an upcoming podcast episode with Laurel Taylor of Candidly, which is a site that also tries to address student debt. And I think, you know, I'm really curious about how the other companies that are in this space are going to see this and how they're going to avoid being sort of painted by that big brush the same way that all the crypto companies have to avoid being painted with the brush of of FTX. It's going to be weird to see it pan out. And meanwhile, of course, debt relief is still going to be stuck in the courts for quite a while in the U.S. So it's just a mess. Yeah, there is a fintech, edtech zone, overlap zone. And I think this is just going to cause every board to say, hey, we need more proof that the numbers are real and the data is real. But if you do have real numbers and you do have real traction, you know, this could also be, you know, a strong counterpoint to say, here's how we've done it differently. Before we wrap with our M&A and investments, you know, 2023 start is a great time to look forward and just see what's coming up on the agenda. ASU GSV just announced their Elite 200. What are you looking forward to coming up and any takes on the new lists and new conferences coming up? 
Yeah, so GSV put out their sort of GSV 150 companies. They put out the Elite 200, which is the competition for the GSV Cup. South by Southwest EDU just announced the competitors for their pitch competition. I love this part, this season of the EdTech year. I'm really excited. You know, we're going to be at GSV, you know, with doing some EdTech Insiders events. And I'm hoping to be in, in South by as well. What's exciting to me is just when you see the companies coming out there, it's companies that, you know, many of which we've talked to on the platform who really, really have incredibly optimistic and strong viewpoints about where education should go. And I think, you know, we've all been sort of bearing through our this EdTech winter, you know, the end of the year, we Hull and IQ reported that the total funding for EdTech of the year was like about 10 billion down from about 21 the year before. So really pretty serious pullback. And the conferences, I think, are everybody's opportunity to sort of reset, get energy from each other, see all the really cool new companies that are coming out. I know the Transcend Fellowship, Alberto Arenaza does, had 10 different companies in the fellowship I'll be in the uh, Elite 200 this year. And just you get to really feel the communal aspect of everything. So I'm pumped about conferences and hoping to be at South by as well as as GSB. But I think that's it for our news segment for this week. A lot going on. And we'll jump into funding and M&A as well as to our guest, Natalia Kerchikova, who is a professor out of Norway talking about evidence in EdTech. So let's go through the funding rounds and the mergers and acquisitions for this week. Most of the big funding rounds coming out at the beginning of January this year are coming from India, from the Indian EdTech market. We saw Lead School have a $20 million round. And in related news, Lead School is also set to acquire Pearson's local K-12 learning business in India. So Lead School is getting both funds and some content and a, you know, Pearson run business to sort of accelerate its own growth. We saw EdTech startup Toddle raise $17 million from Sequoia Capital and others. That's also an Indian EdTech, as well as paramedic EdTech startup Virohan raising $7 million. These are from funders such as Bloom Ventures. Toddle was raising money from Sequoia Capital India. And finally, in our Indian EdTech roundup, $12 million, 12.6 to Eduvans, which is a company that offers loans for schooling, upskilling, and test prep. That's an extension of a Series B fundraise. In the non-India news, which is much smaller, we saw Phoenix-based Scola raise $10 million. That's a company that's helping K-12 schools in the U.S., enroll and recruit students. We also saw Howdy, which is a comprehensive web portal for higher ed, extend their Series A by $5 million. And finally, the community engagement platform Forge, that's F-O-R-J, which is sort of a borderline ed tech, but it's really about bringing people together and supporting online communities, including learning communities, raised $2.3 million. The only acquisition that came across our radar this week was B2B ed tech company Uolo, that's U-O-L-O, also in India, buying a coding platform called Techie, T-E-K-I-E. That's an all-stock deal, and it's basically a B2B ed tech buying a coding platform. So reminds me a little bit of when, you know, Pluralsight bought Code School back in the day, or Skillsoft bought Code Academy just uh, you know relatively recently. When you have a B two B platform buying 
you know, a set of content or a platform that does coding practice and assessment is a really valuable thing to offer your business clients. So there's our funding and mergers and acquisitions for the week. For our deep dive today, we have a really special guest, Natalia Kusarkova, who is a professor of reading and children's development at the University of Stavanger in Norway. And she is an expert in EdTech evidence and has been looking at it from her perspective in Norway. It's really interesting to see what she has to say. Welcome to the podcast, Natalia. Thanks for having me. So you've written extensively in a number of different venues about the role of evidence in EdTech, including a recent paper for EdTech producers about the importance of evidence. Why do you think evidence has been overlooked for so long in EdTech? And what signs do you see that it might be on the rise in the coming year? Right. Well, as for the sign that this is shifting, I think the obvious one would be the market demands. That was, I think, quite nicely summarized by Carl Rectanus, who was on your show before. And we too have seen um, greater demand for our services. So the demand is coming from schools and districts for evidence documentation. And Wicked, our company, has been providing services to EdTech to integrate more research into the development of their products. So the clear sign is not only from customers, but also from funders, both private and public, who are really demanding more documentation and proof of evidence that an EdTech is effective. And then I have been a fellow of the Jacobs Foundation. I don't know if you are familiar with them, but they have been calling for a culture shift for some time now to put evidence at the heart of the EdTech industry. So there are some signs out there that I think are showing that the ecosystem is shifting. And in terms of the reasons, well, (laughs) you might think about several reasons, but perhaps I give you three and maybe you have more. But the ones I've been thinking about is that, you know, it takes time to produce solid and rigorous research. So the reason we have been waiting for this for some time is that Studies take time to develop, and such incremental research when you're comparing different EdTech or when you're looking about their added features, that takes some time. And I, as a researcher, I have been thinking that I really want to be confident before I make a recommendation for policy and for designers, like this is what you need to do. So now we have meta-analyses that are showing what works and what doesn't work. And that, of course, makes us more confident to speak to policymakers and so on. I'd love to jump in here, Natalia. And I I feel like you really do a fabulous job, not only of describing the potential solutions, but also the problem. I would love to just read a quote from your report, Understanding Evidence. And I love that it's a brief guide for ed tech producers, too. So you're thinking about how do I make this for the ed tech community? It says, the discrepancy between the rhetoric of edtech's potential for positive learning and the scientific evidence showing the opposite has led to a divided public discourse. Some uncritically promote edtech as a force for educational change, while others universally perceive edtech as a threat to analog and in-person teaching. Tell us more about that kind of problem statement and also just in terms of the different groups or the spectrum of groups 
what is the current state of evidence in education before you talk about kind of the different methodologies? Well, one way of expanding the quote is to use the example of EdTech use for literacy development or children's digital reading, something I have been specializing in. Because if you mm-hmm. translate the quote in that context, you know, the rhetoric of EdTech's potential for positive literacy learning, that is based on the notion of equity. You know, you want digital books because they are lower cost to distribute, they are more accessible, they can be adjusted to various learning needs, they can be personalized with their storylines, they engage reluctant children to read. So there is a huge potential for all children to participate in literacy. But that potential gets quickly overshadowed by the evidence we have. And by we, I mean a consortium of researchers, you know, uh, several international studies and meta-analysis showing that many, really many (laughs) digital books are not optimally designed to support children's literacy. So they are not in local languages. They have many distracting features. They interrupt conversations between parents and children or children and teachers. So that is a problem. And if such low quality ed tag is taken to classrooms, then, you know, teachers reject it. They quickly abandon the digital books in favor of print books. And that is where you get into this polarization that the potential is not met and the perceptions then escalate and you lose the nuance in the debate. It then becomes about technology being either good or bad. And I think that's a big shame because if we lose the nuance in the debate, then we are talking about print versus digital and not talking about which format and design work best for which types of learners, which is really about the promise of EdTech we could be researching and looking at. That's such a great point. I really like the way you're expressing that the opinions get polarized. You know, we've been in EdTech a long time, and I think of researchers like Justin Reich or Audrey Waters, and people who've written about EdTech or Larry Cuban from a sort of informed, skeptical point of view. They look at the research and they say, hey, you have this rhetoric that it's going to change everything. It's going to make learning so much better, but we haven't seen the proof yet. And it strikes me as there's a sort of a cultural difference between the researchers like yourself and some of the people you're quoting this consortium who really want to get it right. And it takes a long time. They really need to do these randomized controlled trials or other types of valid research. And then EdTech companies, which are at heart, they're still businesses and they still want to move quickly and they want to get their products into the hands of as many students as possible without jumping through a lot of hoops. I'm curious how you've seen that, you know, that tension play out because the research community obviously wants what's best for students, but so does the EdTech community. And it feels like sometimes that polarized nature puts them at odds with each other. Mm, That is such a good point. You know, you have a group of researchers who tend to adopt the perspective that if the design is bad, we can fix it and we can find a solution for it. But there are also groups of people who believe that we don't have to necessarily adopt or jump on the bandwagon and think about what can we do with analog and traditional methods and sort of asking the critical questions like, do we need this? And of course, the answer lies in trying to marry those 
perspectives and seeing what the traditional approach can bring to the innovative one. But it can get quite polarized. And I think that is how it started, but we are seeing much more merging now and, and synergies. When it comes to why it has taken so long, you know, I think one of the key reasons is also that policymakers have now developed rules and regulations that are based on the evidence that has been generated by researchers. So we are now looking at evidence as a criterion to be tied to federal funding and rules and regulations. And of course, in US, you have ESSA, and we now have national reports in the UK or the recent report by the Norwegian government. So there's some clear messages around the need for greater evidence checks. And that, of course, helps with the procurement of evidence-based edtech. In the U.S., we're also doing some, I would call it remediation when it comes to this, because the science of reading, otherwise known as, you know, phonics instruction that has been proven by many, many, many mm. studies, is now, now that a lot of state governments are putting in science of reading legislation to make sure that the curriculum they're buying is aligned to the science, but it hasn't been for a long mm. time. There's been a lot of... I, you, probably know more about this than, than anyone. It's, there's a lot yeah. missing. There. I would say also say, you know, we're seeing a lot of movement in the evidence space to the top ed tech VCs region and OWL released impact reports in the last several months to kind of not just highlight the financial returns, but also define and highlight the educational impact of their portfolio companies. And we also, you know, part of the big news in this space is that learn platform was just acquired by Instructure. So we're seeing the players understand evidence as a service is valuable. I guess, you know, for our listeners, it would be great practically in your paper, you recommend three methods that we can bring evidence into EdTech versus national requirements, such as ESSA-tiers, certification options, such as the ISTE standards. And then third is use of research consultancies like Learn Platform or Wicket AS or Educate Ventures. Can you walk us through these three methods and the pros and cons of each? And, you know, just for our listeners, what's practical given where they are in the journey of their ed tech company or in their school or school district? Well, methods or perhaps pathways to be more evidence-based. And I mean, again, I'm keen to know what others think, because obviously I'm giving more of a provider rather than a client-customer perspective here. But the way we think about these different pathways, and this is based on the requests we have from companies and the way it's been conducted in our research groups, it's that there are different evidence needs when an edtech company is in a growth cycle. So you can have evidence for scale and evidence of learning impact. And ideally, they run as two prongs of one cycle together. You know, you don't want to scale a product if you don't have evidence for positively influencing learning. So they need to work together. Many companies don't have connections to schools and they are willing to test their products and they don't have research teams. And that is where the test beds come in and companies and labs that pair edtech companies with pilot school settings to test and develop products. So that is the other pathway. That is when edtech commission us or other companies to run a study to help them establish, you know, what kind of impact are they making in this specific setting. 
or where they sit in relation to ESSA and, and other established evidence parameters. So those will be the three main methods, if you like. So sounds like you're saying there are a number of different options for an ed tech company. They can be aware of the national requirements of the, the countries they're in. They could pursue certification, such as ISTE certification that shows that they are meeting certain standards. They could use research consultancies, and the research consultancies can connect them to pilot schools and create research programs to accelerate their evidence story. Right. So ideally, an EdTech would have a portfolio of evidence that combines this usability with effectiveness and efficacy and pedagogy, right? So in other words, you have the independent scientific third-party evaluations and you have the teacher's views based on their experiences. And it's the combination of evidence and experience that needs to work together and of course, should have children's voices at their heart. Lovely. I think that's a great note to end on, children's voices at their heart. And you asked about the pros and cons, right? Yeah, yeah. Or it's not necessarily even pros and cons, but for each strategy, you know, who's the right person to initiate that strategy or when's the right time? I mean, obviously, if you're an ed tech provider, you can't initiate national strategies or a national framework, but... I do think, you know, from a practical standpoint, when do we lean into those and when do we use that as our kind of evidence strategy or tool? Right. And I think that's that's such a good question because there are various types of evidence. It is really about different horses for different courses, you know, and EdTech needs to establish what is their imperative or the purpose whether they want to meet a certain tier in ESSA in a given state or establish that a new added feature makes a difference, or perhaps they want to scale to a new market. So they would be adopting different strategies and different methodologies for the different aims. And I think this is really worth emphasizing that you have multiple pathways. And while the need for evidence is global, and most EdTech operate internationally, the requirements for evidence and its demonstration, they vary across countries. And this is not surprising, you know, education is key to national development. So by default, you will have different rules regarding the purchase and procurement of educational resources, which ETEG is part of. But you have different national curricula, so the content of EdTech needs to be adjusted for that variation. and naturally the journey to evidence it won't be linear it will take some tours and detours for each company till they reach the solid evidence base of efficacy so the companies that have established their core proposition or the non-negotiables if you like they can then test how well these work in different settings and what adjustments can be made while keeping the same positive impact right so one method is to work with university partners or university accelerator labs, and they can then support EdTech on their evidence journey. They can help them establish their value proposition, theory of change, you know, the different types of evidence pieces, which they can then refine and can be used for communication strategy that is then used for influencing government officials, for example. It's a really interesting. I'm hearing, you know, the idea that 
companies can first have to sort of think about their initial markets and what are the national or even state standards that really matter when it comes to efficacy. How do you establish that your product works in its local manifestation? And even that, you know, it's good to do it in a, in a pretty controlled way. But then when you go into new markets, other countries in Europe, you know, a lot of the ed tech companies go to many countries very quickly because the, that the markets are limited in any one country. They have to sort of think about it a little bit anew, but not in an intimidating way. Just think about how does what works in one country continue to scale and continue to have the efficacy as it keeps going. I love the idea of working with university accelerator labs, which are, you know, branches of universities that try to move at the speed of business. And of course, research consultancies like Learn Platform, like Wicked AS, which you run out of Norway, Educate Ventures in England. The last question I have for you is a little bit of a curveball, but your research is so interesting even outside of evidence, one of the things that you research is multi-sensory reading, sensory books that engage all children's senses, including the sense of smell, taste, and touch. I just had to ask about that because I think that it's hard for me to even imagine that. I'd love to hear how you think about these sensory books. I think our, our listeners would find it interesting as well. Right. Well, I have been researching children's um, reading in multiple formats, and I was trying to overcome this dichotomy between print and digital and rather think about children's reading as a multi-sensory experience where you involve the whole body and you become immersed in a story, both with the text and the visual elements, but also in terms of listening to stories and either swiping the page or using touch to opening different pages. And the sense of smell has been very much underestimated in this interaction. So we have been thinking about adding smell, not only as ambient smell, so the smell around you, but also smell that is then embedded in the book. So that is where all factory books started. And uh, now I'm thinking about adding the taste to it so that we can really have a multi-sensory experience. And it is quite exciting to see how if you vary these different elements and how much you foreground or background the different senses, how that influences children's um, experience with the story and, and also their learning. So that is the current research project that I'm working on. And it's funded by the Norwegian Research Council. So it's mostly with Norwegian children, but we're also looking at the impact with Malawian children. So it's an international project, you can say. How cool is that? I, you know, as you're talking, I think of all the children's stories that have taste really embedded in them. You have, you know, Goldilocks eating the bear's food and Hansel and Gretel eating the candy and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And how amazing and immersive would it be if kids could actually taste and smell those stories as they're in them. It's a beautiful world to envision. I'd love to see that come true. Natalia Kucherkova is a professor of reading and children's development at the University of Stavanger in Norway, and she runs Wicket AS, which is an ed EdTech evidence consultancy for EdTech companies. We really appreciate you being with, here with us today on EdTech Insiders. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. 
For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack.